She told me who the four were and plainly said that her prince was the devil. When I told her that and how her prince had cheated her, she replied, If it be so, I am sorry for that. And when she declined answering some things that I asked her, she told me she would fain give me a full answer, but her spirits would not give her leave, nor could she consent, she said, without their leave, that I should pray for her. At her execution she said the afflicted children should not be relieved by her death, for others besides she had a hand in their affliction. Accordingly the three children continued in their furnace as before, and it grew rather seven times hotter than it was. In their fits they cried out, They and them, as the authors of all their miseries, but who that they and them were, they were unable to declare. Yea, at last one of the children was able to discern their shapes and utter their names. A blow at the place where they saw the specter was always felt by the boy himself, in that part of his body that answered what might be stricken at. And this, though his back were turned, and the thing so done that there could be no collusion in it. But as a blow at the specter always hurt him, so it always helped him too. For after the agonies to which a push or stab at that had put him were over, as in a minute or two they would be, he would have a respite from his ails a considerable while, and the specter would be gone. Yea, it was very credibly affirmed that a dangerous woman or two in the town received wounds by the blows thus given to their specters. The calamities of the children went on till they barked at one another like dogs and then purred like so many cats. They would complain that they were in a red-hot oven and sweat and pant as much as if they had really been so. Anon they would say that cold water was thrown on them, at which they would shiver very much. They would complain of blows with great cudgels laid upon them, and we that stood by, though we could see no cudgels, yet could see the marks of the blows and red streaks on their flesh. They would complain of being roasted on an invisible spit, and lie and roll and crow as if it had been most sensibly so, and by and by shriek that knives were cutting them. They would complain that their heads were nailed to the floor, and it was beyond an ordinary strength to pull them from there. They would be so limber sometimes that it was judged every bone that had might be bent, and anon so stiff that not a joint of them could be stirred. One of them dreamed that something was growing within his skin cross one of his ribs. An expert surgeon searched a place and found there a brass pin which could not possibly come to lie there as it did without a prestigious and mysterious conveyance. Sometimes they would be very mad, and then they would climb over high fences, yea, they would fly like geese, and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground, sometimes not once in twenty foot, and their arms waved like the wings of a bird. They were often very near drowning or burning themselves, and they often strangled themselves with their neck clothes. But the providence of God still ordered the seasonable suckers of them that looked after them. If there happened any mischief to be done where they were, is a dirtying of a garment, or spilling of a cup, or breaking of a glass, they would laugh excessively. But upon the least reproof of their parents, they were thrown in inexpressible anguish and roars excessively. 
It usually took up abundance of time to dress them or undress them through the strange postures into which they would be twisted on purpose to hinder it. And yet the demons did not know our thoughts. For if we used a jargon and said, Untie his neckcloth, but the party bidden understood our meaning to be untie his shoe, the neckcloth and not the shoe has been, by rhythm postures, rendered strangely inaccessible. In their beds they would be sometimes treated so that no clothes could for an hour or two be laid on them. If they were bidden to do a needless thing as to rub a clean table, they were able to do it unmolested. But if to do any useful thing as to rub a dirty table, they would presently with many torments be made incapable. They were sometimes hindered from eating their meals by having their teeth set when anything was carrying on to their mouths. If there were any discourse of God or Christ or any of the things which are not seen and are eternal, they would be cast into intolerable anguishes. All praying to God and reading of His word would occasion them a very terrible vexation. Their own ears would then be stopped with their own hands, and they would roar and howl and shriek and hollow to drown the voice of the devotions. Yea, if any one in the room took up a Bible to look into it, though the children could see nothing of it as being in a crowd of spectators or having their faces another way, yet would they be in wonderful torments till the Bible was laid aside. Briefly, no good thing might then be endured near those children which, while they were themselves loved every good thing, in a measure that proclaimed in them the fear of God. If I said to them, Child, cry to the Lord Jesus Christ, their teeth were instantly set. If I said, Yet, yeah, child, look unto him, their eyes were instantly pulled so far into their heads that we feared they could never have used them any more. It was the eldest of these children that fell chiefly under my observation, for I took her home to my own family, partly out of compassion to her parents, but chiefly that I might be a critical eyewitness of things that would enable me to confute the Sadduceeism of this debauched age. Here she continued well for some days, applying herself to actions of industry and piety. But November 20th, 1688, she cried out, Ah, oh, they have found me out. And immediately she fell into her fits, in which we often observed that she would cough up a ball as big as a small egg into the side of her windpipe that would near choke her, till by stroking and by drinking it was again carried down. When I prayed in the room, first her hands were with a strong, though not even, force clapped on her ears, and when her hands were by our force pulled away, she cried out, They make such a noise, I cannot hear a word. She complained that Glover's chains was on her leg, and a saying to go her gait was exactly such as a chain which had before she died. When her tortures passed over, still frolics would succeed, 
in which she would continue hours, yea, days together, talking perhaps never wickedly, but always wittily beyond herself, and at certain provocations her torments would renew on her, till we had left off to give them, yet she frequently told us in these frolics that if she might but steal or be drunk, she would be well immediately. She told us that she must go down to the bottom of our well, and we had much ado to hinder it, for they said there was plate there, and they would bring her up safely again. We wondered at this, for she had never heard of any plate there, and we ourselves, who had newly bought the house, were ignorant of it. But the former owner of the house, just then coming in, told us there had been plate for many years lost at the bottom of the well. Moreover, one singular passion that frequently attended her was this. An invisible chain would be clapped about her, and she, in much pain and fear, cry out when they began to put it on. Sometimes we could with our hands knock it off as it began to be fastened, but ordinarily when it was on she would be pulled out of her seat with such a violence towards the fire that it was as much as one or two of us could do to keep her out. Her eyes were not brought to be perpendicular to her feet when she rose out of her seat, as the mechanism of an human body requires in them that rise, but she was dragged wholly by other hands. And if we stamped on the hearth, just between her and the fire, she screamed out, that by jarring the chain we hurt her. I may add that they put an unseen rope with a cruel noose about her neck, in which she was choked until she was black in the face, and though it was got off before it had killed her, yet there were the red marks of it, and of a finger and a thumb near it, remaining to be seen for some while afterwards. Furthermore, not only on her own looking into the Bible, but if anyone else in the room did it, wholly unknown to her, she would fall into unsufferable torments. A Quaker's book being brought her, she could quietly read whole pages of it, only the name of God in Christ she still skipped over, being, un being unable to pronounce it, except sometimes stammering a minute or two or more on it, and when we urged her to tell what the word was that she missed, she would say, I must not speak it, they say I must not. You know what it is, tis G and O and D. But a book against Quakerism they would not allow her to meddle with. Such books as it might have been profitable and edifying for her to read, and especially her catechisms, if she did but offer to read a line in them, she would be cast into hideous convulsions and be tossed about the house like a football. But books of jests being shown her, she could read them well enough and have cunning descants upon them. Popish books they would not hinder her from reading, but they would from reading books against popery. A book which pretends to prove that there are no witches was easily read by her, only the name devils and witches might not be uttered. A book which proves that there are witches being exhibited to her, she might not read it, and that expression in the story of Van Cole about running to the rock always threw her into sore convulsions. 
A number of times these trials were made by many witnesses, but I, considering that there might be a snare in it, put a seasonable stop to this fanciful business. Only I could not but be amazed at one thing. A certain prayer book being brought her, she not only could read it very well, but also did read a large part of it over, calling it her Bible and putting a more than ordinary respect on it. If she were going into her tortures at the tender of this book, she would recover herself to read it. Only when she came to the Lord's Prayer, now and then occurring in that book, she would have her eyes put out, so that she must turn over a new leaf, and then she could read it again. Whereas also there are scriptures in that book, she could read them there, but if any showed her the very same scriptures in the Bible itself, she should sooner die than read them. And she was likewise made unable to read the Psalms in an ancient meter, which this prayer book had in the same volume with it. Besides these, there was another inexplicable thing in her condition. Every now and then an invisible horse would be brought to her by those whom she only called them and her company, upon the approach of which her eyes would be still closed up. For, she said, they say I am a tell-tale, and therefore they will not let me see them. Hereupon she would give a spring as one mounting an horse, and settling herself in a riding posture, she would in her chair be agitated as one sometimes ambling, sometimes trotting, and sometimes galloping very furiously. In these motions we could not perceive that she was moved by the stress of her feet on the ground, for often she touched it not. When she had rode a minute or two, she would seem to be at a rendezvous with them that were her company, and there she would maintain a discourse with them, asking them many questions concerning herself. We gave her none of ours, and have answers from them, which indeed none but herself perceived." Then would she return and inform us how they did intend to handle her for a day or two afterwards, and some other things that she inquired. Her horse would sometimes throw her with much violence, especially if anyone stabbed or cut the air under her. But she would briskly mount again and perform her fantastic journeys, mostly in her chair. But sometimes also she would be carried from her chair out of one room into another, very oddly, in the postures of a riding woman. At length she pretended that her horse could ride up the stairs, and unto admiration she rode, that is, with tosses one that rode, up the stairs. There then stood open the study of one belonging to the family, into which entering, she stood immediately on her feet and cried out, They are gone, they are gone. They say that they cannot. God won't let them come here. Adding a reason for it, which the owner of the study thought more kind than true. And she presently and perfectly came to herself, so that her whole discourse and carriage was altered to the greatest measure of sobriety, and she sat reading of the Bible and other good books for a good part of the afternoon. Her affairs calling her anon to go down again, the demons were in a quarter of a minute as bad on her as before, and her horse was waiting for her. Some then, to see whether there had not been a fallacy in what had newly happened, resolved for to have her up to the study, where she had been at ease before, but she was then so strangely distorted 
that it was an extreme difficulty to drag her upstairs. The demons would pull her out of the people's hands and make her heavier than perhaps three of herself. With incredible toil, though she kept screaming, they say I must not go in. She was pulled in, where she was no sooner got, but she could stand on her feet, and with an altered note say, Now I am well. She would be faint at first, and say she felt something to go out of her, the noises in which we sometimes heard like those of a mouse, but in a minute or two she could apply herself to devotion, and express herself with discretion as well as ever in her life. To satisfy some strangers, the experiment was many times with the same success repeated until my loathness to have anything done like making a charm of a room caused me to forbid the repetition of it. But enough of this. The ministers of Boston and Charleston kept another day of prayer with fasting for Goodwin's afflicted family, after which the children had a sensible but a gradual abatement of their sorrows until perfect ease was at length restored to them. The young woman dwelt at my house the rest of the winter, having by a virtuous conversation made herself enough welcome to the family. But ere long I thought it convenient for me to entertain my congregation with a sermon on the memorable providences in which these children had been concerned, afterwards published. When I had begun to study my sermon, her tormentors again seized upon her, and managed her with a special design as was plain to disturb me in what I was then about. In the worst of her extravagancies, formally, she was more dutiful to myself than I had reason to expect, but now her whole carriage to me was with a sauciness which I was not used anywhere to be treated with. She would knock at my study door, affirming that some below would be glad to see me, though there was none that asked for me. And when I chid her for telling what was false, her answer was, Mrs. Mather is always glad to see you. She would call to me with numberless impertinencies. And when I came down, she would throw things at me, though none of them could ever hurt me, and she would hector me at a strange rate for something I was doing above, and threaten me with mischief and reproach, that should revenge it. Few tortures now attended her, but such as were provoked. Her frolics were numberless, if we may call them hers. I was in Latin telling some young gentleman that if I should bid her look to God, her eyes would be put out, on which her eyes were presently sir so. Perceiving that her troublers understood Latin, some trials were thereupon made whether they understood Greek and Hebrew, which it seems they also did, but the Indian languages they did not seem well to understand. When we went to prayer, the demons would throw her on the floor at the feet of him that prayed, where she would whistle and sing and yell to drown the voice of prayer, and she would fetch blows with her fist and kicks with her foot at the man that prayed, but still her fist and foot would always recoy when they came within an inch or two of him, as if rebounding against a wall, and then she would beg hard of other people to strike him, which you may be sure, not being done, she cried out, He has wounded me in the head, 
But before the prayer was over, she would be laid for dead, wholly senseless and to appearance breathless, with her belly swelled like a drum, and sometimes with croaking noises in her. Thus would she lie most exactly with the stiffness and posture of one that had been two days laid out for dead. Once lying thus, as he that was praying was alluding to the words of the Canaanites, and saying, Lord, have mercy on a daughter vexed with the devil, there came a big but low voice from her, in which the spectators did not see her mouth to move. There is two or three of us. When prayer was ended, she would revive in a minute or two and continue as frolicsome as before. She thus continued until Saturday towards evening, when she essayed with as nimble and various and pleasant an application as could easily be used for to divert the young folks in the family from such exercises as it was proper to meet the Sabbath with. But they refusing to be diverted, she fell fast asleep, and in two or three hours wake perfectly herself, weeping bitterly to remember what had befallen her. When, when Christmas arrived, both she at my house and her sister at home were by the demons made very drunk. Though we were fully satisfied, they had no strong drink to make them so, nor would they willingly have been so to have gained the world. When she began to feel herself drunk, she complained, Oh, they say they will have me to keep Christmas with them. They will disgrace me when they can do nothing else. And immediately the ridiculous behaviors of one drunk were, with a wondrous exactness, represented in her speaking and reeling and spewing and anon sleeping, till she was well again. At last the demons put her upon saying that she was dying, and the matter proved such that we feared she really was, for she lay, she tossed, she pulled, just like one dying, and urged hard for someone to die with her, seeming loath to die alone. She argued concerning death with a paraphrase on the 31st Psalm in strains that quite amazed us, and concluded that though she was loath to die, yet if God said she must, she must adding that the Indians would quickly shed much blood in the country and horrible tragedies would be acted in the land. Thus the vexations of the children ended. But after a while they began again, and then one particular minister, taking a particular compassion on the family, set himself to serve them in the methods prescribed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Accordingly, the Lord being besought thrice in three days of prayer with fasting on this occasion, the family then saw their deliverance perfected, and the children afterwards, all of them, not only approved themselves devout Christians, but to the praise of God, reckoned these their afflictions among among the special incentives of their Christianity. The ministers of Boston and Charleston afterwards accompanied the printed narrative of these things with their attestation of the truth of it. And when it was reprinted at London, the famous Mr. Baxter prefixed a preface to it, in which he says, This great instance comes with such convincing evidence that he must be a very obdurate Sadducee that will not believe it. The Tenth Example William Davies, with nine sailors, in which one was a negro, and one boy, and one passenger, sailed out of Boston, December 28, 1695, 
in a ship called the Margaret, of about eighty tons bound for Barbados, laden with fish, beef, and a small parcel of lumber. Within a few days, one of the sailors named Winlock Curtis, being at the helm, about eight o'clock at night, called to the captain, telling him that he could steer no longer, and which, when the captain asked him the reason, he besought the said captain to think him neither drunk nor mad, and then added that he had but a little time to tarry here, constantly affirming also that a spirit appearing by the name of Bidakel accused him of killing a a woman wished to sell her said that he had left alive, and reported to him that the rest of the ship's company had signed the book, which he was from that argument now urged also to sign. The sailor declared his resolution that he would never hearken to the devil, and requested that he might be furnished with a Bible, in the reading of which he was at first greatly interrupted, but at length he was able distinctly to read it. On the day following, he was violently and suddenly seized in an unaccountable manner, and furiously thrown down on the deck, where he lay wallowing in a great agony, and foamed at the mouth, and grew black in the face, and was near strangled with a great lump rising in his neck nigh his throat, like that which bewitched or possessed people used to be attended with. In a few days he came a little to himself, but still behaved himself as one much under the power of some devil, talking of the visions which he saw in the air, and of a spirit coming for him with a boat. The ship's company, to prevent his going overboard to that invisible spirit, which he attempted once to do, confined him to his cabin, and there tied him and bound him so that they thought they had him fast enough, but he soon came forth without noise to their great astonishment. He then fell into a sleep, in which he continued for twenty-four hours, after which he came to himself and remained very sensible, giving a particular narrative of the cold circumstances which he had been in, and calling for pen and ink to write them down. But he put off doing it until the ship then under a fresh gale should be a little quieter, and so it came to be altogether neglected. Upon January 17th, in the north latitude 19, sailing southwest, with a fresh gale east, and east by south, about nine at night, a small white cloud arose without rain or any extraordinary increase of wind, which falling on the ship immediately pressed her down to starboard at once, and the hatches flying out, she was immediately so full of water that it was impossible to recover her. If she had not been laden with lumber, she must have sunk to the bottom, Whereas now, being full of water, which drowned the boy sleeping in the cabin, she soon righted and floated along, overflowed with sea, after this, for eleven weeks together, in which time there happened the ensuing passages. First, within a few days, one Mr. Dibbs, a passenger who formerly had been very undaunted and courageous, began to talk oddly of several persons in Barbados, adding that one stood at the mainmast who came for him with a wherry. And soon after this he was gone insensibly, none knowing when or how. About a fortnight after this, one John Jones was in the same insensible manner carried away, and so was the above-mentioned Winlock Curtis, 
Within about a fortnight more, one of their number died through the unconquerable difficulties of the voyage. And about a fortnight further, the negro, sitting as not in his right mind, and under another sailor, were in the night insensibly carried away. About a week after, one Sterry Lion, the carpenter, not being in any disorder of mind at all, often spoke of his end being at hand, and that it would be, by a wave of the sea, fetching him away. Him they saw carried away by a wave about nine o'clock in the morning. All this while their food was only flesh, which they ate raw, because they could now have no fire, and fresh fish, which in great quantities came into the vessel to them. At several times, and especially before the taking away of any one of their number, they heard various and wondrous noises, like the voice of birds, as turkeys and other fowl. While they were in this condition, they saw three vessels, and judged that all the three saw them. Nevertheless, none came anear to relieve them. Their lodging was on two boards placed athwart the rail, near the taffrail, covered with a sail. And the first land they discovered was Desedio, but a northerly current hindered their landing there. The next land was Grantera, but the wind in the north hindered their landing there also. At last, with a little sail, being reduced into three in number, they ran their ship ashore at Guadalupe, the 6th of April, about two o'clock on Monday morning, where the French kindly entertained them, not as prisoners, but as travelers. Thence they came to Barbados, and there they made oath to the truth of this narrative. The Eleventh Example Reader, into this chapter with too much of reason may be transcribed a passage which I have had occasion formally to publish in a book about the cause and cure of a wounded spirit. There are very cruel self-murderers in which the wounds on people's consciences have driven them. Such a consternation is on them that they can't pitch on any other project for their own repose than that of hanging, drowning, stabbing, poisoning, or some, some such foaming piece of madness. But in God's name, think again before you do so vile a thing. Think by whose impulses tis that you are dragged into this cursed action. Truly tis a more than ordinary impulse of the devil in which I have seen most prodigious evidences. One that came to me with a wounded soul, after all that I could plead with him, left me with these words, Well, the devil will have me after all. In some company, just then hindering me from going after him, as I intended, or I could get at him, he was found sitting in his chamber, choked to death with a rope, which rope, nevertheless, was found not about his neck, but in his hand and on his knee. The sensible assistance which the devil has frequently among us given to these unnatural executions does manifestly show that they who dog the swine into the deep of old are the same that compel persons to be so much worse than swine as to kill themselves. These doleful creatures we have seen sometimes hang themselves to death while their feet are yet upon the ground, yea, by a line which is presently broken and yet left them dead. 
and I think some that have been found and fetched before their life was wholly extinguished in them have confessed to me to this purpose, that they had no sooner given the first stop to their breath, but they presently lost all sort of sense. Only they felt such a load immediately on their shoulders that they could not help themselves, though their knees were on the floor all the while. Moreover, the strange obstructions that are given to men's coming into a probability of deliverance from their hurries do further manifest that the armies of hell are herein beleaguering of them. How often have people been at a minister's door to have spoken with him, but having no power to knock, they have gone away and laid violent hands on themselves. People at the threshold of this very meeting-house have had a forcible and furious kind of whisper made in their minds that they must be gone to some other congregation, but at length, overcoming their invisible pullbacks, they have come in, and a large part of my sermon has been to dissuade any hurried souls from the murdering of themselves, which God has blessed to the saving of them. It seems the bloody demons had, to their vexation, some way learnt what I was to preach about. The result of this is thus much sense. Tis the devil which puts you upon your thus wronging of yourselves. Don't resign yourselves to the conduct of that hellish murderer. Are the devil's hands, I pray, so desirable that you will needs throw yourselves into them while the hands of the Savior are yet open to receive you, to relieve you? Oh, do thyself no harm. The Twelfth Example Strange premonitions of death approaching are matters of such a frequent occurrence in history that one is ready now to look on them as no more than matters of common occurrence. To learn, know, that Satunius hardly lets one of his twelve Caesars die without them, and the vulgar talk of them is things happening every day amongst their smaller neighbors. Even within a fortnight of my writing this, there was a physician who sojourned within a furlong of my own house. This physician, for three nights together, was miserably distressed with dreams of his being drowned. On the third of these nights, his dreams were so troublesome that he was cast into extreme sweats by struggling under the imaginary water. With the sweats yet on him, he came down from his chamber, telling the people of the family what it was that so discomposed him. Immediately there came in two friends that asked him to go a little way with them in a boat on the water. He was at first afraid of gratifying the desire of his friends because of his late presages. But it being a very calm time, he recollected himself. Why should I mind my dreams or distrust the divine providence? He went with them, and before night, by a thunderstorm suddenly coming up, they were all three of them drowned. I have just now inquired into the truth of what I have thus related, and I can assert it. But apparitions after death are things which, when they occur, have more of strangeness in them, and yet they have been often seen in this land. Particularly persons that have died abroad at sea have, within a day after their death, been seen by their friends in their houses at home. The sights have occasioned much notice and much discourse at the very time of them, and records have been kept of the time, reader, I write but what has fallen within my own personal observation, 
and it has been afterwards found that very time when they thus appeared. I will, from several instances which I have known of this thing, single out ones that shall have in it much of demonstration as well of particularity. It was on the 2nd of May in the year 1687 that a most ingenuous, accomplished, and well-disposed young gentleman, Mr. Joseph Beacon, by name, about five o'clock in the morning as he lay, whether sleeping or waking, he could not say, but he judged the latter out of them, had a view of his brother then at London, although he was now himself at our Boston, distance from him a thousand leagues. Then his brother appeared to him in the morning, I say about five o'clock, at Boston, having on him a bengale gown which he usually wore, with a napkin tied about his head. His countenance was very pale, ghastly, deadly, and he had a bloody wound on one side of his forehead. Brother, says the affrighted Joseph. Brother, answered the apparition, said Joseph. What's the matter, brother? How came you here? The apparition replied, Brother, I have been most barbarously and inhumanely murdered by a debauched fellow to whom I never did any wrong in my life. Whereupon he gave a particular description of the murderer, adding, Brother, this fellow, changing his name, is attempting to come over to New England in Foy or Wild. I would pray you on the first arrival of either of these to get an order from the governor to seize the person whom I have now described, and then do you indict him for the murder of me, your brother. I'll stand by you and prove the indictment. And so he vanished. Mr. Beacon was extremely astonished at what he had seen and heard, and the people of the family not only observed an extraordinary alteration on him for the week following, but have also given me under their hands a full testimony that he then gave them an account of this apparition. All this while, Mr. Beacon had no advice of anything amiss attending his brother than in England, but about the latter end of June following, he understood by the common ways of communication that the April before, his brother going in haste by night to call a coach for a lady, met a fellow then in drink with his doxy in his hand. Some way or other the fellow thought himself affronted in the hasty passage of this beacon, and immediately ran into the fireside of a neighboring tavern, from whence he fetched out a fire-fork, in which he grievously wounded beacon on the skull, even in that very part where the apparition showed his wound. Of this wound he languished until he died on the 2nd of May, about five of the clock in the morning, at London." The murderer, it seems, was endeavoring an escape, as the apparition affirmed, but the friends of the deceased beacon seized him, and prosecuting him at law, he found the help of such friends, is brought him off without the loss of his life, since which there is no more been heard of the business. The history I received of Mr. Joseph Beacon himself, who a little before his own pious and hopeful death, which followed not long after, gave me the story written and signed with his own hand, and attested with the circumstances I have already mentioned. I know not how far the reader will judge it agreeable to the matters related in this article, if I do insert, but I will here insert a passage which I find thus entered among my own adversaria. 
February 14th, 1684. Mr. J.C., deacon of the church in Charlestown, told me that his wife, having been sick for a number of months, was on the 31st of August late, seized with the pangs of death, in which being delirious and asking a number of times who would go with her, whether she was going, at length she said, Well, my son Robert will go, and addressing her speech thereupon as to him, she expressed her satisfaction that they should go together. The son of hers was at that time in Barbados, and his friends here have since learned that he also died there, and this at the very hour when his mother here gave up the ghost, and which is further odd, not without the like expressions concerning his mother that his mother had concerning him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.